Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 289. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Marvel Studios' Secret Invasion, episode 5, Harvest, directed by Ali Salim, written by Michael Beam and Brian Tucker. Secret Invasion was created for television by, by Kyle Bradstreet, and it is a Kevin Feige production. Before our review begins, want to let you know about Fan Show Plus, where we talk about extra MCU topics exclusively for uh, premium subscribers, at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. On an upcoming episode of Fan Show Plus, we will be breaking down the latest trailer for the Marvels, and you can access that at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or if you go to Apple Podcasts and you search for the MCU Fan Show channel or Fan Show Plus, you can subscribe there and hear that episode and many more. Also, make sure you are following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Threads, and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I am doing, doing, doing very well. It's a beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I've got one thing on my mind, Sean, and that one thing is decompression. Ah. That's what this episode felt like to me. Decompression, yeah. The one thing that's on my mind is scrolls, but that's it. That's the only yeah, thing that's, that's ever on my mind, at least for <laughs> another few days or so before we get this yeah. last episode of Secret Invasion. This is the second-to-last episode there were a lot of things I liked about this episode, but I think it may have, Paul, replaced episode four as my least favorite. I promise I have lots of nice things to say. If you are looking for people to say nice things and good things about this episode, I promise that I have plenty. But I also mm. feel like this was an episode that was doing a whole lot in record time in terms of its plot movement, and I felt mm -hmm. like it fell into some of the traps that previous episodes had successfully uh, avoided in terms of balancing the emotional stakes, the emotional arch for the characters with a lot of plot movement. This one felt like a lot of plot movement at the expense of the emotional stakes. And so that is where yeah. this episode fell a little bit for me. It wasn't like, let's say, Miss Marvel from last year, where I felt like the fifth episode with the clandestines, like really just shuffled those characters off the board very, very quickly and how that felt very rushed in the story. It wasn't any problem quite on that level. And I would still say my impression of Secret Invasion through five of the six episodes is very, very solid. There were just some issues with this one that leave me wondering how things are going to go in the finale, because I could see a lot of room out there to kind of swoop in and save this and make it a very solid, satisfying finale. But I also see where things that are just kind of slightly headed in the wrong direction now could go completely off the rails in the finale. But I'm going to choose to go ahead and, and focus on the optimistic side of this, because really, through five episodes, most of Secret Invasion has been good to great. Just a few, uh, I think, important missteps in this episode, which we'll get into as we get into the actual specifics. But what do you think about this one, Paul? This episode and last episode are interchangeable. I don't look at them as like I, the last one was. My, I said last week that it was my least favorite, even though I still liked it. 
it kind of goes the same for this one. I could flip a coin for e- my least favorite episode of these between all of them, and it'd be, it'd be literally between these two, and I kinda, like, it doesn't really matter. Because to me, they're the same. And here's my problem with a lot of, I think, Disney Plus shows, and this kind of extends to Star Wars, and I've been complaining about this a little bit on my Star Wars uh, podcast as well, is that because it's Disney Plus, it feels like they extend things out. I go to that decompressed, you know, idea, right? And it just kind of, it feels very evident to me that they want to have the number six, you know, not let's only have five or eight or nine or 10. I know like maybe it's, it, it is like that. And it's oh no, they're, they, they're definitely playing to the number. Um, yeah. Like, I don't think you're wrong, except the interesting thing is you say extend things out, but I have a little bit of an opposite feeling where it felt like this was expanding into a bigger story. And then I felt like here in episode five, they took a turn very rapidly to collapse the story and where it's like they they spent time building a series that probably could have sustained maybe 10 to 12 episodes. And then and I know some people would scoff at that. If you're in the camp that Secret Invasion is bad and boring, I can't help you there. We just disagree. And although I don't know why you're still listening to an episode five spoiler review, (laughs) hoping we could save it for you, in which case I, I could appreciate that. But. I felt like they were telling this very big story in this from a very small perspective. But now I felt like the plot really started to collapse and get pared down very, very quickly in this episode in ways that didn't totally feel true and, and authentic to me in this story. So that was where it was. It wasn't just let's keep expanding. Now it's like we've been expanding but oh crap, this series is almost over. We're only going to do six episodes. So now let's hurry along and, and put ourselves, point ourselves in the direction of a finale. Well, see, and I think you're, you're right. And when I say decompressed, I mean like, it, because it feels like the last episode and this episode were both under 40 minutes. I think it would have served the series better if they would have combined these two episodes together. And I, this is my main problem with some of the stuff in Star Wars. And that's why I say it's decompressed. They took this thing where it feels like a more complete story together, whereas, again, these two episodes, and they chop it in half and figure it out and go, we'll stop it here and we'll, we'll extend it out. It, it just it feels very just disjointed and maybe that's a better word for it. And, but I, I still think it's there's decompression because it feels like that first, the last episode, they kind of stretch things out even into this next episode. And then we start getting all these reveals and, you know, they start moving the plot and the narrative along a lot faster. But by that point, I feel it's already, it's like this should have started happening already. The last episode or building towards that. It feels like, and it don't really have that necessarily as as good as I want it to be, and this is where my biggest criticism criticism of the series so far, which I think has been pretty good, um, you know, and it's it's a legitimate criticism. I think they're just they need, and this is my my criticism to a lot of things in Disney Plus. I just feel like instead of giving us these short little episodes, give me more meat. Don't just throw me the scraps. Give me some more meat on the bone. And I think maybe more people, maybe I would invest more people. I don't know, but it's. When I sit down and I, and I I like a brisk episode, don't get me wrong. I don't like sitting around just watching fluff for an hour and a half, Sean. Let's be real. But at the same time, I you know I want to have I don't want to just feel like I'm being stretched out either. And that's what I felt like, especially in the last episode, even into this. But I would agree, there's definitely the narrative there they they're pushing. But at that point, I know it's the fifth episode and I'm kind of expecting it. So it's like 
And it's still a fun episode to watch. And that's the thing, too. I don't think it's bad by any means, but it just it's a glaring thing to me when I'm looking at this episode. I'm like, they should have just combined the last two. And I feel like I would have been a lot more um, just satisfying as a viewer, for, at least for me. I'm not sure for the audience and you guys what you all think, but for me... It felt I would have felt more satisfied to sit down and get more information because because then you would eliminate the whole idea about um uh oh my gosh I forgot his name Ben Mendelsohn's character Talos um you would, you would have revealed Talos' death right away wouldn't wouldn't be on a cliffhanger you would have been gone through all that whole thing um it just it just to me would have flowed a lot better especially when you look up back to Patricia uh seen her, that's her name right uh. So Priscilla, you know, if, Priscilla, yeah, Priscilla. Are you talking for which one are you talking about? His Fury's wife? For, That's Priscilla. Yeah, Priscilla, Priscilla. Yeah, sorry, Priscilla. Um, Priscilla, you know, if you look at that into this, it just it, it, her arc would even felt even more complete to me. You know, I, it this it would have felt flowed so much better. But again, you know, that's just my take. I don't think this episode's bad. I don't think there's been a really a bad episode. I still think this is one of the stronger overall series. You know, it's not exactly the series I want, like I would want to watch from Marvel because it's again, not a big scroll guy. Um, but at the same time, if I had to sit down and watch a, a series from start to finish, this will be up there compared to the, even above Moon Knight, which it's hard for me to say, to be quite honest, because Moon Knight's one of my yeah. favorite characters. Yeah, I mean, so. I still really like the show and I, and I think that, Whatever disappointments I have in episodes four and five is probably a reflection of how much we both felt about how strong the first three episodes were, because I think you can go back and listen to those three podcasts and you can hear us really raving about this show. And then even in a, an episode that at the time was our least favorite in the fourth episode last week, still a lot of glowing things to say about that episode. And I'll still have plenty of glowing things to say about this episode, most of them revolving around Olivia Coleman, obviously, but... I think that there are there's so many great things about this, but I do feel like they're they reached a point in this show and and it has been a little bit of a struggle in some of the Disney Plus series. I mentioned Miss Marvel as a bit of a comparison where there's a lot of really good, really effective world building table setting in the stories for the first few episodes. And then, yeah, they're running up against the deadline of we have to cap this off by episode six. And so we need to now rush some pieces off the board to focus in on, you know, these last few to really give them the attention that they deserve in the finale. But that leaves other things of feeling shortchanged or feeling like certain elements of the story ultimately didn't have as much meaning as we thought they were going to have. And so that's where I, I think having the solid number, I, I thought one of the beautiful things about the Disney Plus shows and what seemed to be the case early on was oh, they're not all going to be six episodes. But then it very quickly became, well, there'll be six episodes or they might be nine or ten. And But they they still have had these. And I know a lot of it has to do with the business end of it, the logistics, budgeting, and all of those things. I get it. But at the same time, I think the beauty of streaming, that, that no, or one of the advantages that streaming ought to have that we're not necessarily seeing is every story can be the number of episodes that it needs to be based on the story that you're telling. And we're not really seeing that from Marvel Studios on Disney+. And some cases, it still worked out just fine, and there haven't really been issues. And then there have been other ones where maybe they have run into some issues. Because I think for this show, you could either not make it seem like you're building up the story to be that big, like having this World War III backdrop 
maybe you can pare some of that down and this could be a four or five episode series. Or if you are going to expand that story and you introduce the all the levels of the scroll invasion, the scroll infiltration, and all the powerful positions they hold on Earth, that maybe there's more to it than what they're rushing along in, in some of these episodes. I, I don't really know. I think there's a balance somewhere that isn't totally being struck as, as well as it potentially could be for whatever reason. But in any event, I it sounds like I'm saying some horrible thing has happened with this series, and that's not true. I think this is really, really solid just not at the level of, of where things were early on. But I am still very hopeful that the finale will be talking about that, similar to how we were talking about episodes one through three and not necessarily four or five, which again, as I said, still overall, I would say are going to trend, uh, are, are probably going to trend positive. Although who knows what I'm going to get to and what I'm about to say as we continue on with this review. But let's start uh, getting into it here with, we open with, Fury rushing the president into the hospital, protecting the president, um, saying to the president, we don't know if President Ritson can hear or not, but Fury trying his best to make sure the president knows that it was not the Russians behind the attack. There's a really cool shot, though, after the president's taken away to surgery. I love Fury grabbing the chair, sitting in front of the doors with the gun. Like That just felt like a very cool, very classic, very Nick Fury sort of shot as like the one man standing against the alien invasion. I thought that part, uh, that shot looked really, really cool. And then we cut to New Skrullos, and they're back at the base. Pagan, we see, is very is really not happy about the way things have gone down. Gravik says in front of it, as they move inside, in front of the crowd, gathering all the operatives, Gravik says the mission was a failure because the president is still alive. He blames Gravik for coming up empty on the harvest, which we learn in this episode is Avengers DNA. And uh, Pagan then points out that Gravik has had opportunities to kill Nick Fury and hasn't effectively taken them, that he had Fury, he charged Fury's wife with killing Fury, which was never going to happen, that Gravik had an opportunity in that battle last week to last week's episode, you know, not a week ago for them in their timeline, um, had an opportunity to take out Fury and didn't even take a shot. So is pointing out that Gravik isn't re- doesn't really have the intention of killing Fury, so Gravik uh, explains this by saying Fury still has what they need, to which Pagan points out that the Avengers' DNA wasn't in any of the locations that Gravik provided, which means that Nick Fury never trusted Gravik, so why should they, they being Pagan and everybody else on New Skrullos? As one could imagine, Gravik doesn't take kindly to this and goes ahead and instantly kills Pagan, we see Beto, played by, uh, and Pagan, of course, played by Killian Scott. Beto, Samuel Adewunmi, reacts. He's unhappy. We see everybody else noticing this, not happy with the actions that Gravik just took against Pagan. And Gravik says that none of them have a voice. They are faceless. They are nameless. And then he orders the death of Vara, dispatches some operatives to her house to go and kill her, Vara, a.k.a. Priscilla. Gravik then hops on the phone and orders Rava Rodi to keep the president alive making sure that the president knows to not only blame the Russians, but now also add in the piece that the Russians had the help of Skrulls and to get the president to bomb new Skrullos. This is for leverage on Fury, and they're willing to, as we see from Gravik telling Rava, they're willing to sacrifice. If these things work out, they'll sacrifice like they've all planned to all along. What exactly is that sacrifice? I don't necessarily know, but it doesn't sound like Rava is up for it. And obviously, Rava is troubled by the idea of ordering an attack on new Skrullos, because that means a lot of their fellow Skrulls 
are going to be killed in Gravik's plot to continue to incite uh, World War III. So this scene was, uh, this is a very important turn for Gravik, and I, I think it's it's a very natural progression of his uh, of his turn as an antagonist because it really shows now. I, I think they've done a good job of building up Gravik as having his his valid reasons for why he's carrying on this mission without condoning the way he's going about it, of course, but why he feels the situation is so dire and how he is positioned as this hero of his people and just fighting for them to have a home because they have been out uh, been without one for decades. But in a scene like this, you show that ultimately it's more about you're separating him from the cause because you're showing that it's more about his own ego and wanting to win his own personal feelings towards Nick Fury. So it's now for Gravik less about the cause that he is supposedly fighting for because it seemed like he was all about his people. But now he's acting as if they don't matter. He's literally telling them as much when he says that they don't have a voice. They don't have names. They don't have faces. They're basically there to follow whatever orders he gives them. It's also in terms of where the story is at for Gravik. I like the way, you know, the last thing that Pagan says to him before Gravik kills Pagan is talking about how Fury didn't trust Gravik and saying, well, why should we trust you? And you could say that Gravik, you could argue that Gravik is only swiftly killing Pagan for that insubordination of suggesting that we really shouldn't trust you and, and questioning Gravik in front of the rest of the group. But I think that part of the reason why Gravik acted, reacted the way he did and did so so quickly and so brutally is because there's a part of him that believes Pagan is right, not just about why, whether or not the Skrulls should trust Gravik, but that main point that Fury didn't trust Gravik. Fury didn't trust, uh, did not trust Gravik. Pagan knows that. Gravik knows that. And it hurts him. It hurts him that for whatever relationship he had, which I think we'll finally expand on in more of the flashback and probably in some flashbacks next week in the finale, at least I hope so, but Gravik expected to have Fury's trust. He clearly didn't have it, and that explains why this is so personal, that yes, the, Gravik can position himself as the the general who's going to secure, the, the leader who's going to secure the scrolls a home, but that's not really what this was about for Gravik, that and a lot of this stuff that Gravik has, and as this episode will expand on, it's more recent and it's more personal between Gravik and Fury. So I, I do like that in a lot of ways, and I, I certainly like putting those personal stakes in there for Gravik, but in some ways, it, it it's not there yet, but I, I think what it, where it worries me on, I mentioned some worries about the finale, is how are they going to balance this? Because I do think it was actually kind of effective to have Gravik as the antagonist who had some valid cause, even if he was, even if the violent way he went about that cause was wrong, at least some truth to what he was pursuing and some sort of sense of honor and in internally in what he was doing. I think that worked for him as an antagonist, but now making it almost focusing entirely on the personal stakes with Fury, I'm interested to see how that's going to impact my perspective on Gravik going forward. But I feel like there's something, there is a way to balance that, and, I, and I'll get into that more as we continue through uh, Gravik's journey in, in this specific episode. But definitely some key revelations here and in, in what, what Gravik is truly angry about. Well, for me, I, I, I do agree with you that Gravik 
it's nice to have him have some kind of truth to what why he's he's doing this, and we're getting we're getting now the reveal of like the true evil genius, and he's really just a bad guy. Like I, I get it. Like I and I feel like we have one more episode left. I think there's some there's still some. Uh, Hopefully, my, my prediction of him being like a father figure for Fury and being upset at him is still there. I think that's still an intriguing plot line. Oh, if absolutely. Wrong, and both things can be true, by the way. He could yeah, have... Fair enough. Yes, he exactly. could have a valid philosophical claim of wanting to get the scrolls a, a home because they haven't had one for decades. But what triggered him no longer waiting for Fury to be the one to provide that would be, you know, a personal falling out between he and Fury. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, listen, if it doesn't happen... I'm cool. No worries. But I, I will say I did like the scene a lot with one caveat. And, and listen, I get this show is it, you can't go crazy with exp- with the expenses. Right. I it was really cool seeing an actual scroll like him scroll out and like being who, you know, showing who he really is. But everyone else is fighting as like normal people. It's like, as like, you know, well, what I mean? I'm like, well, we're not at that scene yet. That happens. Later. I, I, I get it. But I, I just it just would have felt more. I, it kind of takes me out of it a little bit. I, I, I'm I'm being really critical here. And it's it's kind of a backhanded compliment because I actually really do think the scene is great. I think Gravik is a really, really good villain, to be quite honest. He's one of the better villains, I think, um, in a while. Like, I mean, I. At least for me that I can think of think of off the top of my I head. I mean, I would uh, say and and credit to Kingsley Benadir for his performance in these episodes. Yeah. I I would agree with you. I, I think as antagonists go, there's certainly an argument to be made that Gravik is the best antagonist of the Disney Plus series, at least the best since Agatha, which is the very first Disney Plus series. Yeah, I and I would say, and, and we didn't even me- know Agatha was like she wasn't in antagonist mode until the last couple right. episodes, right? So, yeah, I mean, we knew she was an antagonist, but like, um, and obviously she was under suspicion as we were watching that. But Gravik, I mean, we've known and we were meant to know the entire time this was our antagonist. Yeah, and, and I would say that, uh, I think that's a great point. And that's, and that's what I was going to say was, he, as the the first, the best through and through antagonist all the way through, you know, where it's it's like, you know, what they're, you know, there's no, there's no mystery. There's no, like you go back to Loki. I mean, like, I think, you know, the he yeah. who remains like, that's a, yeah, that's a phenomenal reveal at the end, but that's, but it is just not... the one episode like, exactly. that, that you spend so, with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get, you get, you get what I'm putting down. You get what I'm putting Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Yeah. So you get it. You get it. I don't know what matters. Best it, sustained uh, antagonist performance perfect. <laughs> in a Marvel it. Studios Disney plus series. <laughs> so, so it, for me, this scene is great. I love him scrolling out. I love him going crazy. And I, it's it's really well done and well acted. I think the makeup for the scrolls look fantastic. For, for the scroll looks fantastic. I just wish everyone else was a scroll. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Everything there. I, I loved him. I, I really yeah, like the scene. I, I thought it was a, one of the better scenes of the episode for sure. I think that also ends up being a you know the attack that we see later. Um, well, well, we're almost there. Uh, but uh, yeah. the attack that we see later, I think part of the reason why you have Gravik be the only scroll. Yes, there are budgetary um, factors in that. Absolutely. But also, I think visually it's easier to track uh, when there's one scroll. But I don't know. Um, I'm trying to help them out creatively on on why they would have done that. Because, yeah, you would think at that point, if they're disobeying him, they would, by attacking him, they could also disobey the order that they're supposed to continue to live in their shells, especially when he breaks his own rule right there. Um, anyway, uh, so now we have uh, we're we're back to the hospital. 
Rhodey or Rava Rhodey is there now and Fury pulls him aside and I, I love the line, you must be out of your scroll ass mind. Uh, that was really fun from Samuel L. Jackson. That's totally just letting some of that Samuel L. Jackson energy that makes Nick Fury what he is. It just really shines through in, in a moment like that, which I, I had a lot of fun with. Um, but we see from Rava Rhodey, Rava Rhodey knows that Fury is not going to kill him in that moment because that means that Fury it would die instantly and Fury's not ready to die. Rava is already a step ahead of Fury has already leaked the Maria Hill footage, which is going to make Nick Fury the most wanted man in the world. So Fury has to take off. In the meantime, gets one more threat from Rava Rhodey. And as far as this scene, it's very brief. And it's the classic, you have the villain right in your hands, but you can't touch them because that would, and you would not actually be able to thwart their plot if you go after them right there in that moment. So that's just spy movie, hero movie type of trope. So close, yet so far away. And also, Rava is not the main antagonist here. Rava is outranked by Gravik, and that's why Nick Fury still has to pursue, make sure that he's alive to stop Gravik. And anyway, Rava Rhodey, as far as Don Cheadle and his performance, he's just getting more antagonistic each time, which I, I talked about last week, but even more, I mean, I would, you would, you'd certainly say in this scene, Don Cheadle is just chewing it up and even twirling the mustache a little bit, but I have no problem with it. I think having there's a part of Rava that clearly likes this because for however long Rava has been Rhodey, I think that maybe Rava has noticed that Rhodey at times has been subservient to others, whether it be Fury or other characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and has kind of had enough of that. And wants to, uh, and, and I, whether that was Rava being Rhodey in those scenes or just memories from the real Rhodey that Rava is obviously in touch with, I really like this emergence of this version of Rhodey and how we get more of that week to week. And they also seem to be setting up, I, I mentioned before last week, it would not surprise me at all if Rava is still standing when this series is over. I don't know that Rava will still be able to stand as Rhodey. But one way or another, it feels to me like they're setting up Rava to continue beyond this because we already see Rava going along with Gravik's plan and following orders, but not totally buying into it and already kind of questioning it as others are questioning Gravik. So it feels like they are laying the groundwork for the finale to not clean up all of the scroll invasion that maybe Rava will still be out there. I mean, maybe they'll tie it all up into a, a pretty little bow next week, but I could see Rava sneaking out of this next week and, and still being a problem later on down the line. Yeah, this was a scene that I thought was kind of campy in the best way possible. I would agree. We talking, yeah, I think, and that I'll, I will be honest. If you'll take that, if you'll take this whole scene with them, like we had puts a gun up to him and it's like Fury, and he's like, "You're your school ass man." Everybody, it's like, everybody's being extra. Everybody like Samuel Thank Jackson yes. is is extra Samuel L. Jackson with that yep. line and Rhodey is is, yep. is extra evil alien. Yeah. So if you take that out of context, it's really ridiculous and it's kind of it's just like it's kind of groany. It's at least in my at least if again I'm just being real here. I'm not saying I dislike it. I love groany things all the time. But even as I'm watching this, I'm like, man, this looks like this is like so extra. Like you said, like over the top, ridiculous. Um, it was still fun. 
I, I liked it, but I, I can acknowledge that it feels like there's so much ham going here. You could have had like you could have fed people for days, you know. But so, I feel I mean, like Rava brings that out of Fury. I really that's, do. That's a good, because that's a good point. Go back, yeah. go back to their scene in episode two, where he's you know when Fury gives the line, and at that point we already know that Fury would have suspected that Rhodey was a Skrull. That when he says like I'm Nick Fury, even when I'm out, I'm still in, and and all of that stuff. I feel like that for Nick Fury, like that is Rava. Bring, that's Rava getting under underneath Fury's skin. Like that's getting to Nick Fury, that's where a good he, point. he feels yeah. like he has to turn it on. the The character, the legend, the aura of Nick Fury, he really has to try to turn that on to intimidate Rava, and it doesn't work. I think that's part of the reason why Fury just does it, and he keeps turning up the volume. Like at some point, I have to be able to because I'm. I'm used to being able to do this. If I can't get to somebody in any other way, I can just turn on Nick Fury and turn up the volume on on the Nick Fury character, the Nick Fury persona. I can just do this and it works and it intimidates people. And now he's found somebody where it doesn't work and he keeps cranking up the volume on it and it still doesn't work. It still doesn't have the intended effect. I think Rava turns Nick Fury into extra Nick Fury. That that is actually you've won me over on these scenes even more. So and I'm being serious. Like I didn't think about that. That's great. I yeah. Other than that, I think this is fun, fun stuff. I'm gonna talk probably. I'll, I'll be honest. I'll probably have more to say about Fury at the very end of this episode, which you'll probably understand why. But um, but yeah, I, I like the I like the the ham was fine, but now you've totally you won me over. Yeah. All right. I'll take it. I'll take the win. So. Um, next we go to, we are in London and we see Sonia Fallsworth taking out scroll director Weatherby. We previously knew this character by the first name, Derek played by Tony Curran. And as I said, Olivia Coleman in this episode, she just runs away with every scene that she's in. Um, I love it when he's asking her about the scroll threat and she says, well, if you ask me, sir, I think they're bloody everywhere. And then shoots him in the leg and then, you know, interrogates him and, gets him to give up more of the plan or the location of the Daltons who she'll go uh, confront later on. But Olivia Coleman in this scene and in every scene that she has appeared in in the show, but especially in this episode, she just really, really shines. And I loved it. Um, Paul, let's go to the scene that you were talking about. Super scroll Gravik, uh, as we see. Beto asks Gravik about killing Pagan. Gravik then takes a call from Rava confirming their earlier plan. Gravik also threatens Rava to make sure that Rava is successful. Otherwise, we already saw what Gravik does to failures on his team. So Beto and friends, while Gravik's back is a turn, back is turned, they launch their attack, but then he takes them out. And then the last survivor of that group is Beto. And Gravik takes him outside through the wall and issues an open challenge to anyone else who's there to witness it. Beto gets in the last words of you're nothing but a monster before Gravik then slits his throat in front of everyone. And my reaction to that scene was, well, that as- that escalated quickly. I really thought that, uh, as I said, this episode moves very fast. And I, I kind of, I, I still kind of buy it in-, in that sense. Like, it is very, very abrupt to go from Gravik kills maybe his most loyal faithful soldier in Pagan. Remember, Pagan is the one who uh, killed another scroll earlier on Gravik's orders. Like he, Pagan wasn't really the one questioning Gravik a lot, and then he finally did, and then Gravik immediately killed him. 
and we saw the reaction from Beto and the others, but for the next time we see them, they're already launching their attack on Gravik. I didn't necessarily uh, didn't necessarily expect that, but also it did kind of have to move quickly, and I don't just mean for the sake of the plotting of the overall series. I mean, I just think even with the internal logic of the characters, I mean, Beto would have known what he had to do, and we see that register on his face in terms of it's a pretty severe situation with what Gravik just did to Pagan in front of everybody. So knew what he had to do when Gravik killed Pagan. And Gravik obviously had to respond, or he would have felt he needed to respond the way that he did. Here are a lot of scrolls who just challenged me, and I need to put this down. I need to take them out in a way and do so very publicly, as he does with Beto at the end. He needs to do that to try and intimidate anyone else to the point where nobody else is going to think about trying what Beto and those other scrolls just did. But this will also, of course, I think the natural effect of this for Gravik as a character is this is going to isolate him emotionally and philosophically because there's now no one he can trust, not just because in the general sense of it's spy games and nobody trusts anybody. He can't trust anybody in New Skrullos anymore. No one trusts him. So there's any trust that's there within the scrolls internally is just completely evaporated. And I think it really presents the character with a challenge. And I still say, you know, weighing this against, is this as interesting as Gravik, who was fighting for a real cause? Maybe, I don't know. Like, that's where the, as I said, I don't know the answer to that question until I see how this plays out in episode six. But I could still see there being an interesting lesson or theme being explored here in that what starts out as maybe this valid pursuit, this valid cause can become corrupted. And that's what's happened with Gravik here is he's not been able to guard his philosophy from his own anger, his own rage, his own ego. That's obviously turned into this escalating lust for violence in terms of the violence we've already seen him do going all the way back to the first episode to what he's just done, where now he is, inflicting a lot of violence on his own people in front of his own people uh, while also making sure they know or feel as though they don't matter and there's no way they can actually rise up against him. So seeing Gravik get lost in this is very interesting. And so it's so far, I do not think they've undercut, they've undermined kind of the the hero of his own story sort of thing. But certainly in the eyes of the other scrolls, though, Gravik has has lost that. He is he is no longer a hero. He is now clearly a threat to not just humanity, but he is a threat to his fellow scrolls. Now, apologies. I, I got my, uh, when I was talking about stuff earlier, I, 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 my mind misplaced where everything was in the timeline of the episode. I apologize. Oh, um, good. Uh, second of all, um, really quickly, Fallsworth, she has definitely been to me the standout, like, of the, the what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, the I outbreak. Am, I just keep thinking, how are we going to get this character and more stuff in exactly. very quickly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Could, because I it feels like she is to me the uh, the rising star of yeah, outbreaking rising star of the series that I was not expecting. And they the way they've written her, it, I, I I will admit we'll get to that in a second. But it, there's it's it's almost like she it's she's got everything to plan, and it's like she kind of she gets to escape from things that like probably doesn't really make a lot of sense in real life. But no, nah, but she I screws digress. up in this episode. She helps out Rhodey and had no true. idea he was a scroll. Yeah, that that's true. Well, I'm, I'm talking about more of like the we'll get to that in a second. Um, that, I don't want to get too far in the head. But I will say this: she as a character. Ha, is so charming 
And as an actress is just like, I'm, I'm, I'm immediately love to see her on screen the way they've written her. I thought it's been pretty well. And I need to see a verbal battle between Fallsworth and don't call her Val. Exactly. And that's what I was going to go was it feels like maybe we're setting up because with fury, we'll get to that in the Marvel's trailer back Um, in space. (laughs) Yeah. Back in space, there's going to be a, a push and pull with everything. And I wonder if this is them setting up this character for thunderbolts of some sort. So it, it wouldn't, it, again, I, I, maybe when we do like a season ending episode, if hopefully falls where knock on wood survives. Um, you know, I hope we'll, we'll get into some speculation with that. Um, cause I think there's a reason they're putting her in this, in this, uh, show. I, I, I don't think it's just a, uh, oops, here we go. We're going to kill her off in the next episode. They've built her up to be a very, very formidable person to fury. They put it on the same level. And when you do that as a character, as a new character, it's, it's not, you have to be very careful because people are going to be like, oh, all of a sudden I have to believe this character is a badass and, and whatever. I felt they've done a good job of developing her, showing her that she's very much behind the scenes, but we'll get her hands dirty if she has to. Um, and, but it's just, it's very, I don't know. I, I think they've done a good job of building up her character and, and having her be on that level of fury where she's not maybe the badass where he'll like, I, she can maybe take care of herself from a one-on-one, you know, fight matchup, but she's so smart. She puts herself in the right situation at all times. And I thought that was really, it's been a very interesting dynamic. Whereas fury will do that, but she is like, she's very much eight steps ahead. Whereas fury, maybe six, you know what I'm saying here? So it's very interesting in that aspect with this character. And I like seeing that and I love, and I will get more of her character in a moment. Um, yeah, the graphic stuff. I like all this. I like yeah. all this. I will, I will, I love seeing this all. I kind of mostly already said my piece on that. Um, yeah, I do worry I, I that thought, Fallsworth might become Rava Rhodey's escape pod. God, if, don't say that. If Fallsworth isn't already a scroll, which so far there's no indication that she is, yeah. but you never know. She could be. Maybe that's why she has knows so much about scrolls that she actually is one. Um, there's that possibility, but I also kind of wonder, although if she had known, if she was a scroll, she should have known Rhodey was, but yeah. in any event, yeah, cause I, I do think that Rava might survive this story, but I also don't think it's possible cause Fury is still around after this. And it does sound like the Marvels is after, uh, this mm-hmm. movie. I know we were worried about where things were in the timeline, but if the Marvels is indeed after Secret Invasion, then if Fury is still around, Rhodey can't still be walking around as a scroll. Like, I, I just don't... Eh, who knows? Maybe there will be some other th- some other piece of blackmail that Rob or Rhodey can say, like, here's why you can't out me, but I don't think that's going to happen. I do see Rava potentially escaping into a different identity, and I could see that potentially being Fallsworth. I don't really know... Um, but I, I guess we'll we'll ultimately have to see. But I hope not, because Fallsworth, just as she is in this series, and Olivia Coleman is just spectacular. And as I said, she's got to be there going toe-to-toe with Val at some point, because the idea of teaming up and or putting them pitting them against each other, Olivia Coleman and Julia Louis-Dreyfus just sounds too much, like it's just way too much fun to pass up on in, uh, in the MCU. But uh, the next scene that we get is in the safe house. Fury has uh, has returned. Gaia is there. Fury is ready to talk about how Talos died a hero, died for a cause, and Gaia is really not wanting to hear that. She says he died on a foreign planet, on a foreign road. Nothing will come of it. 
Um, also, uh, he there. She may have said something about how it was too early, and he died only. In, it was only episode four when he died, but that might have been me subconsciously adding that line of dialogue. But anyway, uh, Gaia points out how she ran from her father because she knew he'd lose. Fury says Talos chose the path of struggle, and therefore he did not lose. Uh, Fury says Talos told him how Gaia survived her execution, uh, which means that Fury knows that Gaia has extremist powers. She reveals what Gravik has in terms of the DNA that he already has, but what Gravik was looking for was the harvest, and this, of course, registers with Nick Fury, and we see that on his face. Gaia points out how she needs to bury her father, Talos, who died in the last episode, so Fury says she can go to Priscilla for help with that. Police lights we start see shining in through the window, uh, so Fury is, he's got to go. He says he's headed to Finland, asks Gaia if she'll be all right, and she says, don't worry, I'll put on a good face with a little bit of a smile. This scene, I I did not like. This scene, I did not care for in this episode. This is probably the weakest part of the episode for me. And I think that it missed in the way, as when I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode misses in the way that this show hasn't overall. The seri- This episode misses in places where the overall series has not been missing up until this point. And I think this fell into that trap of we have to keep the plot moving. But then that ended up happening at the expense of it undercut, I thought, the emotion of this moment, particularly with the way the scene starts. We start with Gaia expressing her grief, her pain, her anger over her father's death. And within just the span of a couple minutes, within just the span of a few lines of dialogue, we go from that to a a quip and a smile in terms of the I'll put on a good face and she smiles and we're out of the scene. And normally, I mean, the MCU does this, right? They do have moments where it's very intense. Emotionally, it's very heavy. And then within a few lines of dialogue, we could get to a quip. But this is one of those examples where I feel like a lot of times I, I feel like that still works because sometimes that's how life works. And that's how people talk is using humor to break tension, to undercut Uh, intentionally undercut some of the heavy emotion that they might be experiencing or feeling. But this didn't really feel like that because we didn't go, we didn't have that progression where it's not like the other lines of dialogue that got us from her anger and her pain to, and her grief that got us from there to the quip and the smile. Those lines weren't really addressing her emotions, except for one with Fury saying, you know, she can't be paralyzed by, allow herself to be paralyzed by her grief really what these what this dialogue was about it was just about exposition it was about in very rapid succession making sure the audio that we the audience understand that fury knows that she has extremist powers what gravic wants and fury learning what gravic wants where gaia is going where fury is going so we're not we're just moving the plot along of here's where everybody's got to go next here's what everybody's got to do next we're not really addressing the emotional experience of Gaia in this moment. And I think when you look back, when I look back on especially the first few episodes and how wonderful of a job this series has been doing and giving these characters a chance to express their emotions with really great dialogue um, and, and obviously outstanding performances by the actors and really got the time, the care, and the attention in, in those moments to make sure they weren't undercut by all the rapid plot movement. This was a time where I felt like they did not achieve that. They did not achieve at least certainly nowhere near, uh, nowhere nearly as effective as they had in previous instances. So this took this scene to me took 
was kind of the opposite of a lot of things that this series had been doing so well up until this one point. It's just this one scene, so it's not like I'm saying this derails the series or even this derails this entire episode. I would just say in a series full of really, really great scenes, this was not one of them. Yeah, I, I would say it feels like um, it feels like Gaia has, has been kind of just I'm not like uh, underutilized, but it, it, it definitely comes across that way. And I think this scene is a great example of that. It's like she's kind of been hovering around. We've got her talking to her dad a little bit. And I like the character. I think she definitely has a cool scene, I think, with uh, Priscilla here in, in a little bit. Um, but, you know, but like you said, it just it just feels it just felt kind of random to have them all all of a sudden together. Like, oh, it's one of my safe houses. It's like, you know, I picked it here. I was like, wait, what? It's like, what? It's just it feels very contrived. It doesn't feel natural. It feels like you're trying to get like them on the same page. Even yeah. though they're kind it's of like, at odds. We just, needed you know, a Fury and a Gaia check-in, but we also need to do about five other things. So let's have them talk about all of that in this check-in and then move on. Yeah, like, what is he looking for? I don't know. Probably the harvest. Oh, my God. And it's like, I know you got some of that harvest in you. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously it's not word for word or whatever, but it's just, yeah. And we'll get into the harvest here in a little bit. Um, probably at the end of the episode again. Um, oh, yeah. we're definitely getting into the harvest. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, not my favorite. Um, I, just really quick. This, I'll just say I, I agree with you on everything. I, not my favorite. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, but it's not great. Um, did they, did she confirm that he only has, uh, uh, graphic only has a couple powers right yes. now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So he's got, so we obviously the Groot and then he has the obsidian, right? Um, yes. So okay. yeah, she mentions, you know, call obsidian. She mentions the flora Colossus, which is Groot. So yeah, she mentions what graphic has. And so that way fury knows what graphic has access to. And obviously knows that means he doesn't have, uh, the rest of it, he doesn't have the harvest, which, as we know, is is the Avengers DNA. And we'll get into that more when Fury really explains exactly what that is and, and where it came from. But, yeah, I, I think with this, this was really more of an, an exposition dump than it was. And uh, filling in characters on and some a lot of information that we already know and then giving us uh, the heads up of here's where everybody's about to go next and the scenes that, that are, are to follow this one. But yeah, I think you you open the scene with the intense anger and frustration for Gaia. And I don't really feel like and, and her feelings on that are are fair, like her feelings on that are legitimate. And I don't even feel like that was necessarily addressed or treated as such in, in the scene. It was just she has to be emotional because her dad just died. But also we have to go over all this other information. So let's cram all of this into a scene in just a few minutes um, and we'll still end it with everybody smiling and, and making a quip. That's the part of it that I didn't really get. The Another thing is when she says, you know, putting on a good face, she keeps the same face. Uh, like, I don't know. At this point, strategically, I don't know why Gaia, other than we have to keep Amelia Clark as the star of this show, strategically, it doesn't make sense for Gaia to continue walking around looking the way that she had, having the same human shell. It really doesn't make sense. If if she wants Gravik to believe that she's dead, that would be an opportune moment to change faces, literally, um, and operate as somebody else. And especially when Gaia's whole attachment is about living in her own skin. So I don't know why she would be so particularly attached other than her human shell. So I don't think there's a great plot or character reason for her to still look the same 
It's just our own knowledge of Amelia Clark is still a great actress and that we want her to continue playing the character. So that's why she continues to look the way that she does. Anyway, uh, I digress and I'll stop. So moving back, uh, getting back into our plot here, we catch up with Sonia Fallsworth, who is now visiting the Daltons. Great delivery of the line, Hello, Skrulls, when she first sees the Doctor's Dalton. That was fantastic. Talking about how she's good at being lots of different people, good at being your bestie. Also devilishly good at not being your bestie. So it's basically a cake or death situation. Uh, so she gets her one up on the Daltons. She torches their lab. She gets some information on the Super Scroll machine. And then uh, Dr. Victor Dalton tries to take Dr. Rosa Dalton hostage, uh, saying that he won't let Rosa Dalton or anybody, uh, won't let anybody undermine Gravik or stop Gravik or anything like that. And Olivia Coleman's delivery and Fallsworth's reaction to this is priceless when she talks about how the males in her species are very similar. If they're not busy gaslighting you, they're threatening you with murder. It's what all the podcasts are about. Unbelievable line, unbelievable delivery. And Olivia Coleman, as I said before, just walks away with every scene that she pops up in in this series. She is so freaking good. And I love this. And I, I like that she's catching up a little bit with uh, what's going on with the scroll plot. But as we'll find out with her cooperation with Rhodey, she doesn't really fully understand everything. So as you said, Paul, I, I, she's several steps ahead, like Nick Fury, maybe in some cases more steps ahead than Fury, mm -hmm. but they're different steps and they don't always exactly. sync up. Yeah. And I think that's what we see happening here. So Fallsworth is, is really, really great. But this scroll plot is so intricate and, and, and runs so incredibly deep that nobody's able to really piece it all together until Fury, of course, goes to confront Gravik in next week's episode in the finale. But uh, in any event, Olivia Coleman just continuing to shine. And this was a scene that was fun to watch multiple times. I mean, as I said, the whole line about what type of bestie she could be, the Hello Scrolls line, everything she said in here was gold. Yeah, no, that, that, that's totally that's totally uh, legit. Um, yeah, my only thing with this at this part was when the when the guy came back with the shotgun and she she he didn't just fire at her. I thought that was, I don't know, I I just felt like that was a little too like she, I don't. I, that's the only thing about it. I was like, I wish he would have shot, tried to fire at least once or like, and she would have heard him or saw him. And then, you know, some, I don't know. I just, it just seemed like it was too convenient to be like, I got a gun pointed at you. I'm just going to keep pointing at you. And she's like, well, I got a gun pointing at you. It's like, yeah. okay. Okay. Not, that's not really on like, it's I mean, that's writing. a, that's a trope of everything of. That's fair. Antagonists that's fair. have heroes dead to rights all the time, already have the yeah. gun pointed at them and don't pull the trigger under the guise of, I need to know more about why you're here. I need to, you know, it's it's always, there's always some reason they don't instantly pull the trigger. What I liked is that Fallsworth instantly pulled the trigger. Like as soon as he took, yeah. uh, as soon as Victor Dalton took Rosa Dalton hostage, she's just, and he was saying his threat and then she was just like, all right. And she just shot him right in the head. Um, yeah, true. I, yeah. That part, I what that says about Fallsworth, cause, and I think we've seen it. We've seen her choose violence a number of times in these episodes, sure. but the violence that she's chosen was not fatal. Um, you know, cutting yeah. off a finger, shooting a guy, uh, shooting a scroll in the leg. But this time she went right for it uh, in that situation. Um, and the remark about what all the podcasts were about, all of that was just fantastic. Olivia Coleman, yeah. amazing. What a terrific addition to this series. Then we catch up with Rob Arodi and the president with Rob Arodi following Gravik's orders to tell the president that they have to take out the, that they have to take out new scrollos. 
dropping Fallsworth's name. It's not just us. SIS has confirmed the same information. And the president knows what this means, though. If they order a strike on New Skrolos, that means a strike on Russian, so- on Russian soil, which starts World War III. But of course, Raba is seemingly talking the president into it. Then we cut to a phone chat between Fury and Gravik, where Gravik says Fury needs to bring him the harvest, or Gravik will see to it that the president bombs New Skrullos. Fury then boards a private jet that was provided to him by Mason, played by O.T. Fagbenle, an amazing MCU, not really, uh, an MCU, a fun MCU cameo. Uh, Mason, of course, a character we were introduced to in the Black Widow solo film in theaters in 2021, now available on Disney+. Plus. Um, we get a funny mention of the helicarrier because we know Fury was able to pull a helicarrier out of nowhere in Avengers Age of Ultron. Mason says that that was mothballed and maybe Fury should be as well. So anyway, Paul, this scene, it's a fun little cameo that keeps Mason around. I don't think that this is meant to blow anybody away as an MCU cameo. So I'm fine with it in that sense. I think it's really just keeping this character around because he could be relevant in things like Thunderbolts or other projects down the line. Um, And also reminding us of that connection between Fury and Natasha and their history together, even though Natasha is not specifically mentioned in this scene. Um, But she is there because the Widow's Veil, as we'll see later on in the episode, is one of the little gifts, the prize pack that Mason tosses to Fury. And as far as Mason having a a future in, in the MCU, he could have one. He may not. This may be it for Mason in the MCU, but I also think the Natasha slash Yelena connection could get Mason involved in Thunderbolts, but I don't think we're going to see anything much bigger than what we saw here. So it was a fun little thing of we can throw this guy in to to play into the MCU history, but I, I don't think this was meant to send any massive message or, or blow anybody away as far as, you know, in the, the long storied history of MCU interconnectivity cameos. Yeah, I think this is more of a fun nod and trying to get more props to Black Widow, which, by the way, I need to rewatch that. It's I, a good I, movie. I, yeah, it's it's yeah, I've been meaning to rewatch it. Um it's 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 more of a nod to I think the fact that, you know, that uh oh my god, Natasha. Oh my god, yeah, Scarlet. well somebody uh, had to be helping them. Somebody has to be it, helping exactly. these super spies get all this stuff, and Mason is the guy for that. Yeah. And so and, like and, and Fury and, and Natasha and, having the same guy makes sense. Well, and how would she get the guy in the first place, right? I mean, right. and he had, and obviously the guy has to be independent from Shield, so it, it just makes sense that there's a connection, there's a relationship, yeah. and he's connected well, maybe with Natasha them. was so, the one who knew Mason first. She might have brought Mason to Fury. We don't know. Word, yeah, yeah, no. So yeah, I, I didn't. I saw people clowning on this a little bit, and I was like, eh. I mean, like I, I don't mind. It's Look, fine. If I, like, if Marvel had hyped it up, if the Marvel Studios Twitter account, sure, and. Instagram and everything else was like tune into Secret Invasion this week for a big MCU cameo. Like if they had hyped it up, then I would say, yeah, we can kind of laugh at that, be like that silly. They didn't. There's no hype on this whatsoever. It's just Fury needs help, needs a guy. Here's a guy that we know from Black Widow. And credit to OT Fagbenle, who you know, he only has a. I mean, I don't even know if that if he clocks in a minute of screen time in this scene, and he's really good. He's charming. He's funny. You know, we him being somebody who can actually give Fury crap, like there's not that many people who can throw those types of jabs at Nick Fury and Fury just takes it like him at the end saying, like, get some sleep. You seem like you're kind of grumpy. All of that stuff I thought was really fun. 
So yeah, this was a fun MCU cameo to me. It's not earth shattering. It's not, oh my God, this is why the MCU exists so we can get a Mason cameo. No, that's not what this is. That's not what it's meant to be. That's not the intended effect. It's just supposed to be fun. That also adds a little extra context, a little extra layering in a little extra history in the MCU and relationships between characters. And that is as much as it needs to be. I think that's part of the beauty of the MCU is some cameos and some characters popping up unexpectedly can mean a whole hell of a lot, but it doesn't always have to. And sometimes it can just be fun and and also makes sense from a, a plot perspective. And this was one of those instances. And so I, I was totally on board with it. I had fun with it. I was delighted by it. And I think that was all it, it that was really it did everything it needed to do. But anyway, we'll continue on with uh, Priscilla and Gaia. So earlier on in the episode, I know I jumped ahead a little bit. We did see Gaia breaking into the Fury house and Priscilla, uh, Priscilla was there. Priscilla, a.k.a. Vara, was there ready to defend herself, but believes Gaia when Gaia says that Fury sent her there, knowing that Priscilla could help uh, Gaia bury her father. And we see the funeral that they hold for Talos. We see an offering, which was the ring that belonged to Gaia's mother. Of course, Talos's wife. Priscilla says the scroll prayer because Gaia doesn't know it, although we see her with the, the end of it wishing her father a journey into uh, into the beyond. But then we see we see them back at the house and Gaia gets to express some of her feelings. So not just the the anger and the pain that we saw earlier. This time she's talking more about the regret. She feels guilty about the last thing she said to her father, as we saw last week. And Priscilla talks about the last thing she said to Fury before the snap. If you keep spending all your time chasing aliens, you might lose the one you married. I really like, by the way, quick aside on this, or maybe not quick, we'll see. I really like that Priscilla referred to it as the snap because I feel like sometimes in the conversation around Infinity War and Endgame, the blip has kind of taken over to where everything around the snap is considered the blip. And this, in my mind, makes it clear of what it should always be. And Marvel should be very careful about in the dialogue. I don't know that they've necessarily messed it up, but... The snap, these are two distinct events. The snap and the blip are two different events. The snap, everyone goes away. The blip, everyone comes back. Two different events, five years apart. I think it's important to talk about them as different events because they have their own implications immediately and then, of course, in the long term. So that's just me being a Marvel continuity nerd and timeline nerd. I just like it being clear that those are two distinct, they're related, but still two separate events. Anyway, Thank you, Priscilla, for uh, for clearing that up and making sure that's there. Um, anyway, there is the the question in this scene, and I'm glad that they address it because when Gravik dispatched his operatives to go kill Vara, aka Priscilla, at the Fury home, my immediate question is why the hell would she still be there? Like, why, if you know, because she chose not to kill Nick Fury, she knew immediately that they would be coming for her. So the logical thing to do is have her run away. She hasn't run away. She is still at the home. And then we get some explanation of that. Why did Priscilla stay here when she knew Gravik would be sending someone to kill her? And Priscilla gets to tell the story of finding the house and how she came to feel like that was the place she wanted to build her life with Nick Fury and just watching him, you know, with the sun coming in through the windows and just watching him read a book and everything. And Gaia wants to know, if Fury ever got lost looking at Priscilla, a.k.a. Vara, 
in her own skin, to which Priscilla slash Vara responds, that's none of your business. And I like when Guy tries to say she didn't mean to offend. Vara calls her out on that, saying, of course you did. Of course you meant offense. You're young and you think you know everything, but you know what it, you don't know what it takes to build a life with someone to sustain it. And Priscilla continues that in the end, she would rather meet her executioners while standing in her house in what she calls the place of her happiness instead of running down some dark alley. And right on cue, the executioners show up to the house and open fire. So we go into the lab and Priscilla's got a couple of handy gun backpacks. Might have been even handy, more handy to have the backpacks already out and ready since she was expecting an attack. But nevertheless, um, we see Priscilla and Gaia using those guns to dispatch to dispatch the attackers rather easily. And I will say, as action sequences go, it's not spectacular, but I have to credit Amelia Clark and Charlene Woodard, who do a great job of looking really badass uh, while just unleashing their attack on these uh, on these scrolls. So I liked it as a as a quick action sequence. And then, as far as the logic of Priscilla staying there, facing the executioners in her place of happiness. I could be cynical about it, and I could say, well, also, it allows you to get one more scene out of this same location, although they did build the extra room to house the the gunfight. But this is where, it, this is a, another you buy it or you don't type of scene in, in terms of the logic for this, because I do think this show, as we've highlighted in previous episodes, routinely, this show is asking the actors to do a lot provide a really great sense of history and emotional attachment to things that we haven't actually witnessed as an audience. Fortunately, in most cases, I think the actors are up for it. And I have to give a lot of credit in this scene to Charlene Woodard, because when she gives that speech about the house and why she wanted to stay there and why she'd be willing to risk dying in that house as opposed to being chased down in some alley, I mostly buy it. And maybe, as I said, Maybe you already have the backpacks ready to go. I don't know. If you're if you're expecting the attack, don't just have the one gun. Be ready to handle the attack that's coming. But um, I totally understand if you don't buy it, if you look at it cynically and say they just wanted to keep the same location, or you want to look at it and say it just it still doesn't make sense for all the emotional attachment to the house. Survival is still a pretty important motive, and it doesn't make sense to ultimately stay there, especially when scrolls can change their shell. They can change there are ways to avoid attack that we don't see Gaia exercising and we don't see um, Vara slash Priscilla. We don't see them taking all the things that they could and using all the tools that they have, abilities that they have in order to just have basic self-preservation. You can argue the logic of all of those things and I totally get it, but I think this show is mostly being smart and relying in those cases where they're defying logic, doing a really good job of, ha- of showing how emotion overrides the logic and that is something that people do if human beings do it scrolls can do it too and so i think that's kind of what they're going for with this scene and as i said if you don't buy it i get it i barely slightly begrudgingly buy it but the fact that i buy it all uh, that i buy it at all is truly a testament to the uh, the performance of charlene woodard who just continues to be amazing as priscilla slash vara yeah i <clears throat> I think that I, I buy the whole thing because we don't know if Pris- she didn't have backpacks packed, in my opinion, if you want to go that deep. Maybe she'd think she wasn't going to survive, which is weird that like Fury wouldn't have some like if she was expecting that it'd have more 
like yeah i feel like crazy. a nick fury house has like booby traps everywhere exactly That's but i also I feel like I, I i could totally see the conversation where fury's like we should have this and she's like no like yeah, this true. this is a home not a fortress that's fair either way I actually really like the scene uh, with Gaia and Priscilla, and I, and I like I like kind of giving Gaia more growth as a character, her learning um, that things are not as simple as maybe Gravik wants them to be, you know, because she because again they really painted you know the show did a good job of making Gaia be, be that go between between Gravik and Talos, and Priscilla very much is kind of in the I wouldn't say in the middle, but she's not one or the other either she's about she's she's happy where she's at she's found con- being contentment is what i should say and i think that's what she's telling gaia is that you know when she makes that mark about is it in your own skin she's none of your business and you know and, and she calls her out and says you're young you know you you know you don't understand the gravity of these things sometimes when you know your the situations are all different kind of you know i'm just paraphrasing you know subjecting proje- projecting my own kind of viewpoint of what she's saying all that to be said i do think that it kind of gives guy a perspective and a respect to a reverence to a character like um, Priscilla who she can look up to and, and and can understand that things, yes, are not even, even maybe even greater yeah. than she thought. Well, she, it's like, you want to, you want to judge me for my choices and what that says about who I am and what I'm willing to sacrifice versus what I'm, well, you're willing to sacrifice, but you could just see, I mean, the conversation obviously got interrupted and it wasn't really the argument that Priscilla was interesting, interested in having, but that that debate is something they could have had, and Vara slash Priscilla could have just as easily said, "Well, you want to question who I am as a scroll because I've lived a life, with, I've married a human being, and I presented myself to him as uh, you know as a human being, but he still knows who I am. He still knows that I'm a scroll, and at the same time." you can't really judge me when you're coming to me for help because you need my help burying your father because I know the scroll player, the, the scroll prayer and you don't. So in terms of who's more versed in our culture and our identity and who's still preserving that versus who's lost that, all of those types of arguments that they, they could have that debate. And I'm not saying any either one of them would be correct in terms of what their final conclusion would be. They could have that argument. But the point that Priscilla, I think, is making is, we don't need to have that argument. You're not actually in a position to judge my choices and I'm not in a position to judge yours. Like when you, when I express myself, you issue a question of judgment, but remember when you expressed yourself about the regrets of what you said to your father, I didn't judge you for it. In fact, I pointed out an example of how I said the same thing because we all do these things and we all make our different choices, um, which I, I think is that, as you said, Paul, that's kind of the the important lesson i think from priscilla and slash vara in this scene is that we we have our reasons we make our choices and ultimately you know what exactly our truth is and what means the most to us and the life that priscilla built or with nick fury priscilla slash vara the life they built that was to her where she found happiness so if her life was going to end at any place it, it would be there and as i said i can I can be snarky about how they went about it and how prepared she was instantly for the attack. But ultimately, she was successful in in defending herself. I do think it opens the door to a very interesting conversation that Priscilla and Gaia could have. But ultimately, I think Priscilla's point, even before they got interrupted, would have been, we don't need to have this conversation because we don't need to be judging each other. Like we, We just have to find our ways to move forward together. Yeah, exactly. So... 
Very good scene. Better version of what happened of the scene between Gaia and Nick Fury from earlier on in the episode. So then we are in Finland. Fury arrives with the party favors that Mason tossed him. Uh, that old Black Widow trick of the widow's veil. Fallsworth picks him up. And then as we cut to them in the car, they are 294 kilometers from the Russian border. Fallsworth tells Fury that she corroborated the new Skrullo site for Rhodey, not knowing that he was a Skrull. And I like her question about that when he point when he informs her that Rhodey's a Skrull. Who the who in the hell isn't a Skrull these days? It's a funny line, but I also feel like it's a line that could still come into play, and maybe we'll get another Skrull reveal at some point next week. But anyway. Fury explains what Gravik wants. We keep hearing the harvest. We've heard about Avengers DNA. What does that all mean? Well, Fury explains it to Fallsworth. Nearly every Avenger spilled blood in the Battle of Earth, a.k.a. the final battle in Avengers Endgame. And Fury says, even Carol Danvers. So here's our connection to the Marvels. Um, in the aftermath, some were sent in to collect that DNA. Some with the ability to blend in scrolls. Nobody knew about them except Fury and the Collectors, led by, guess who, Gravik. And that's probably where Gravik got the idea for his Super Scroll machine, or so Nick Fury thinks. Fallsworth then says, so you are responsible for all of this? And Fury says, yeah, why do you think I came back? This whole thing of the Avengers DNA and the Harvest, this really is... Nick Fury being peak Nick Fury. After everything that happened in the Infinity Saga, he's still pulling Fury stuff of let's round up some Avengers DNA just in case we need it for some reason. But it also indicates, uh, in addition to what this says about Fury, which I think is very consistent with who Nick Fury has always been throughout the time that we've known him in the MCU, including doing a lot of questionable things, and I'll talk more about how questionable this is as we go deeper into the interaction between Fury and Fallsworth, but I think not only with what this says about Fury, it also indicates the falling out between Fury and Gravik is more recent because we know that it wasn't. There's been reference in the show previously to Fury being gone because of the snap slash blip and then also being gone after the blip. Well, Fury and Gravik were still working together post blip. So they were to they were working together after that final battle collecting that DNA, which suggests that their falling out was more recent within the past few years. So that shows that maybe that's why things have escalated more quickly now and, and why this feels more recent and, and not just, yes, it's very much about the, the Skrulls having decades without a home, but things have escalated in these past few years and here's kind of why and here's where it all started, including probably at some point Gravik realizing that I helped Nick Fury with this harvest, but he did not trust me. At some point, maybe we see a flashback where it's in a line of dialogue, Gravik pointing out the moment he realized that Fury didn't trust him, and Fury wasn't even there to answer for it because Fury uh, was already off in space doing whatever Nick Fury was doing uh, up on uh, up on Saber. But then this also begs the question, are the Avengers going to find out about this? And at, at some point, if they do find out about this, how would they how would they respond? Because this is obviously something that I, I don't think a lot of Avengers would be very happy about if they were to discover that Nick Fury was harvesting their DNA and and keeping it away for for safekeeping for his own reasons and his own motivation of whenever he would deemed whatever whenever he would deem that it was necessary to use. So very morally complex, ethically questionable territory, which 
as much as we like Nick Fury, he usually finds himself in these situations or puts himself in them. Yeah, this is very, very interesting because we still don't have a reason what he's doing in space. Um, other than he's being Nick Fury heading up sword. And the, again, I go back to the fact that, you know, he's not hanging out with Priscilla, just, you know, as his wife. He's like, no, I blipped out, came back, going up to space, came back only because of the, of the, of the, you know, whatever that thing was called harvest. And I, I, I'm very intrigued of what the harvest could mean for the MCU going forward, because I think this is, could be a gateway, not just for scrolls, but for other heroes in the future. Mm -hmm. Like what this, what does this mean? I think there's going to be a plot device to get other heroes who have superpowers that are coming eventually. I think that's what we're, we're, we could be leading to potentially not, not like, a, like a plethora, but a good portion of them could be, they'd be using this, this kind of uh, plot method to get them kind of superpowers or whatnot. Because I mean, at, this, at the same time, the Avengers is a byproduct of, you know, Miss, you know, Captain or Captain Marvel's uh, movie, or the events of that and mm -hmm. of Thor and things like that. I mean, he says it in so much as in the Avengers. Like, why, why do you have this? You know, why does the world need protection from Captain America? Because of him. When he puts yep. Thor's like me, you know, it's so this is all this has been Nick Fury's number one job. And it makes sense of like if, if he's very much the Tower of Babel for you Batman fans out there. Uh, this is very much, very much that Good very call. much that. And you know what? I, I you, you can't really blame Nick Fury for having that. So sure you can. I say uh, I, I, I you can I, I just because you just because you can understand it doesn't mean you can't also find fault in it. I don't I don't see the fault because he brought I. I Listen, I do I look what's happening now. I mean, I, I think if you look at fair. if you look at the way things have escalated, like if this if this harvest doesn't exist, then it, it doesn't mean that Gravik doesn't eventually cause problems. It, it doesn't mean yeah. that. But certainly this is a huge motivating factor. And, and Fury even says as much. I know this is my mess. That's why I came back to clean it up. So I think that even if you say Harvesting their DNA without the Avengers' knowledge is not a problem, which I would disagree with. Even if you say, though, that's not a problem or that's forgivable or or whatever, it still is the what can go wrong. And frankly, Nick Fury has made a career out of envisioning what can go wrong. And this was a foreseeable outcome that ultimately, I mean, he was doing this with someone he clearly did not trust. And because he didn't even make the he made the choice to not disclose the actual location of the harvest to Gravik. So, yes, there was the potential that this could eventually go wrong and there could be severe life or death consequences, which there have already been. I mean, keep in mind what Gravik did, which, again, it's not the choices that Gravik makes are not are, are not Fury's fault. But at the same time, there is some in, in the in the chain of, of what caused what, like there's still some piece of this in there for Gravik of being motivated by this. And Gravik has already killed thousands of people. We already saw that in the very first episode. So I think for Fury, there is some responsibility in this. And, and I, I'll have more to say about this. I think when we get into, uh, let's we might as well go ahead and get into the next piece of the scene when we get to Fury's speech. So we see Fury's grave in Finland, one of many, because Fallsworth points out that this is, uh, that we've seen graves before for Nick Fury. Doesn't he have uh, another one of these? Because we saw another one in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and we were talking about that 
when we were discussing the first trailer or trailers for Secret Invasion. Well, turns out Fury's got a bunch of them. But this one here in Finland, uh, when they're standing there looking at it, Fallsworth asks uh, Fury why he hasn't called in his superpowered pals. And here is what Fury says. This is personal. We can't keep depending on these superheroes to swoop in and save our asses. None of them have lived the life I have. None of them can defend the world the way I can. The only power I have was planted between my ears by a single mother and wrapped around my finger by a woman who's far greater than I could ever hope to be. If that ain't enough, then I don't know what hope we have. If that ain't enough, maybe I am just dust. As I've said before, um, a lot being asked of the actors, and this is some beautifully written dialogue, beautifully delivered by Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. It is a very, very nice speech with a very, very wonderful sentiment. But on the other hand, as I talk about the flaws in this episode, it doesn't make a lot of sense because I think this really plays into Fury's own ego. We can't keep depending on superheroes to swoop in and save our asses. Well, for Nick Fury, that's been a plan that's actually worked out pretty well for him. It's worked out better when he's called in the heroes versus the times that uh, that he hasn't. He didn't call in any heroes and a couple thousand people just died uh, in Russia in the first episode of this series. Um, so that's something that he can't really ignore when he was working on his own and not calling in help. Uh, also, all the other times he did call in help and things worked out very well. None of them can defend the world the way I can. I don't know, Nick. You you felt like you needed them against Loki. You felt like they did pretty well against Ultron. I mean, I know you came in late in the process, but ultimately the heroes were doing the job. Of course, there were mass casualties with Ultron that the Avengers have to claim some responsibility for, particularly uh, Tony Stark. But I, I don't really think that for this, this speech really plays into Fury's ego. I appreciate the sentiment what he learned from his single mom, what he learned from his wife, and all of that. I said, I said it's very beautiful, it's very touching, but for Fury to not be calling in the Avengers, I think there's a huge elephant in the room in this conversation, in this speech, um, right there at, uh, at the cemetery, because really, not calling in the Avengers also seems self-serving, not just playing to Fury's own ego, but it also allows him to avoid accountability. If he calls in the Avengers, he has to tell him what the problem is. And if he has to tell him what the problem is, then he has to tell them that he harvested their DNA without their knowledge. And now the world is at risk largely because of that. And I really wish in this scene that Fallsworth would have checked him on that. That Fury goes unchecked when he gives that speech and it's just treated as a purely inspiring moment with Nick Fury being pure of heart when he's just explained the actions that show that Nick Fury is never entirely pure of heart, um, even though he may, in his mind, have the best intentions, he has ethically questionable ways of going about it, and that is commonplace for Nick Fury, and they don't really acknowledge that. They don't treat it that way in this episode while clearly explaining a situation that is obviously that way. That's an issue for me in the storytelling. I think that other stories have done a better job of when Nick Fury does stuff that people find questionable, he gets called out on it, and he has to kind of defend it in whatever way he can. He doesn't really do that here because nobody's even checking him. You know, not calling the Avengers. It isn't just about we can't depend on superheroes all the time. It's I really did something questionable with those superheroes and with their DNA without their knowledge. And I really don't want to tell them because I'm sure the way they would react to it is not something that would be great for me. Yeah, this is one thing that it was nice to see the fury that with eye patch and the black and 
I, oh, I I'll, I'll get to that cool part. To I got I got some stuff for Fury's wardrobe change. Well, all right, all right. I I, I can put this all together for sorry uh, for me. So I I don't know. I I I definitely feel like I agree with you to an extent. Um, but to me, it's because I know it's his show, and it's it's like you're like okay, this you knew this was coming at least in some at least in some form of like I gotta do this by myself. Sure, it's just like, find a better speech to justify it. I, that's and that's fair, and I, I think that's fair. I, don't I think just focus on the emotion of it and the up. The end of this episode is kind of weird because it gives it really treats. Nick Fury as almost a Captain America, although Captain America has made flawed decisions in the past. Sorry, everyone. But it really treats Steve Rogers, that is. I think that this, the end of this episode works really hard to treat this as the the hero turn, the return of the hero Nick Fury. But it is undercut by not intent, like, but without acknowledging, without acknowledging the other layer to it, pretending that other layer that they just explained doesn't have the character implications that it just undeniably in my estimation has with what he, he what he just explains he did is a really bad thing but we don't treat it as that and we just treat it as here's my sentimental reasons for wanting to be the guy and no one can defend the world like I can yeah in many ways that's true but there's also this whole other motivation you would very clearly have for not bringing the avengers in on this and that is for that to not be acknowledged or checked in any way at all. I mean, I, there's more lines of dialogue that need to be in here, I, I think, to really justify it. I think it's a very sweet, very nice sentimental speech, not the type of thing we normally hear from Nick Fury. But that still, in my mind, goes as, as incomplete because it's just completely ignoring the ramifications of other things he just said. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I, I agree with all that. I this part was just kind of more of a par for the course for me, you know. So, so I just kind of it, it didn't love it, didn't hate it. Again, kind of goes along with like I feel like in context of the previous episode, if we put this all together, this feels more complete. Like this feels more, even though it's like it follows up the next episode, like the next week, it just feels it would flow better together, in my opinion, in in the context of fury's journey if you will so that's where i where i'm at with this anyway yeah well flow or not i would still say that the the implications are are still the same and, and probably yes. should have been better addressed and what they and how they went about it but anyway um so as far as why fury chose finland for this gravesite and where he decided to hide to the harvest it's because that's where fury and priscilla honeymooned and scrolls like the cold which Obviously, Fallsworth uh, notices that. She checks. She, uh, Fury confirms with a nod that, yes, in fact, he has married a scroll. Fury uh, uses his breath to open up the gravestone, revealing the harvest vial. And Fallsworth finally checks him on something, saying, so giving the vial to Gravik after going to such great lengths to hide it. And Fury says, yeah, that's kind of the plan. And she says, they do, they do say Darwin never sleeps. Let's give our extinction a nice leg up. And Fury says, exactly. Um, I, I love it. Or Fury just kind of laughs it off when she says that. Um, again, nice winning line for Olivia Coleman. I really wish Fallsworth was there to check him on more of what he just said. But we're moving on. And Fury then enters the mausoleum nearby to change coats, get the eye patch, and uh, as well as a gun. He was a shoe, chun a shoe change away from being full super spy Mr. Rogers in that scene. But I don't care. I like the idea of, okay, if we're going to go with, if we're going to go into 
hero Nick Fury mode, even with the ethically questionable stuff he just explained, if we're going to go into that mode, presenting the visual message, and I think what that means for Fury, like we said, like I said before, in terms of dialogue, Rava is able to inspire Fury to be extra Fury, but I think what Nick Fury wants in this moment is he wants the legend of Nick Fury and dressing the part helps him feel the part and he needs whatever confidence that he can muster real or not real or a result of his uh, clothing choices, whatever he can muster to go into this confrontation with Gravik. Uh, he needs it because he's not been super confident throughout these episodes, throughout this story, and he needs to get as much of that back as he possibly can. He talks to somebody on the phone saying it's time Let's finish this. And he exits as classic Nick Fury. And the music, uh, the, of course, score composed by Chris Bauer, Bowers starts to sound a little more heroic. So as I said, there's a little bit of, there's a little too much Hero Fury treatment after what he just explained. But I also get that this is the send-off going into the final confrontation with Gravik, or perhaps, presumably, final confrontation with Gravik in the last episode so I, I like the end of the episode, and I also don't like the end of the episode. It's very mixed for those reasons I outlined on the final scene for this. But I do like Nick Fury kind of adopting that persona and reclaiming that because he kind of put it to bed. And I know we've seen other indications of it since Winter Soldier, but he largely put a lot of that persona and that legend to bed with Winter Soldier, minus uh, you know a few pop-ins here and there, like we saw, of course, in Age of Ultron. Um, but for the most part, he's not been as Nick Fury, and now he's kind of going into that full Fury mode. I do like that because I feel like not so much because Fury deserves to be seen as as the hero all the time, but because I do believe as a character and where he's at emotionally in this moment, he really needs it. He needs to do all he can to make sure that he believes that he is the Nick Fury of old in order to feel capable of taking on Gravik. As far as the last thing of who was Fury talking to, it could be Gravik setting up their final meeting. Yes, it could be Monica Rambo, who we know that Fury would have been working with on Saber. We know that he she was called up to uh, called up into space at the end of WandaVision. It could be Priscilla. It could be Gaia. I mean, earlier on in the episode, we saw Gaia getting out of a car with uh, Priscilla wishing her good luck or telling her to be careful. I'm not sure who's on the other end of that conversation. Although Monica has superpowers at this point, and Fury would know that. So while I understand all the reasons it could be Monica, one of the reasons it, it may not is that would go against what Fury just said of calling down superheroes, because at this point, Monica Rambo is a superhero. So I'm not sure who's on the other end of that line. As I said, it could be the, the simplest answer being Gravik, of we already know he needed to set up a meeting, and so that's it. So... I don't know. We'll find out who was on the other end of that call next week. But I would also say, Paul, in terms of things I'm looking forward to next week, things I still feel like we need from this show, I still feel like we need to know more about why Nick Fury was in space all that time. I, I still think we, I, I think they've hinted at it. They've gone into some of it, but I still think a larger explanation is there. I think um, a, a specific moment, perhaps, where everything fell apart between Fury and Gravik. Did, did Fury never trust Gravik, or was there a moment during the harvest that led Fury to believe I can't ultimately trust Gravik? Was, did Gravik show something to Fury that made Fury believe that Gravik would use the harvest for his own purposes and not necessarily for whatever Fury would have ordered or, or deemed necessary? So there are some unanswered questions emotionally for these characters. 
that I hope is that I hope really hope are part of the finale. It shouldn't just be about the plot of how Nick Fury gets to Gravik, how he undoes the scroll plot. I think how we got here, there are still some questions of how we got here that need to be answered in the finale. And I hope that they will be, because that is something that would certainly allow the finale to feel a lot more complete in my eyes. Yeah, this is something where I'm, 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 I need some answers for Fury. I need to know what him and Gravik's relationship was before. Why, you know, there's got to be to me more to Gravik and uh, his relationship and what what he's doing up in space, because that's obviously going to set up, I think, the Marvels uh, and I think potentially other things in the MCU. And I hope it. I, yeah, there's a lot of a whole speculation episode, too. But yeah, lots of good stuff. Uh, I think that we haven't gotten yet and I hope we get this next episode. But I think the series has been good. Last two episodes have been just OK. Uh, not, not, they're not the best, but they've kind of they hit a little bit of a snag. I think decompression and like trying to like, it's, it's been unorganized. It seems like these last two episodes, in my opinion, but, but no, I still like the series. I'm still, in, I'm still looking forward to, to the finale and, uh, and what it means for the MCU going forward after this. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that the first three episodes were strong enough and that these last two, while not as good, were still solid enough that a really strong finale can still have this whole thing come together as a great overall series and, and still one of the best Marvel Studios Disney Plus series, which I know some may scoff at and say low bar. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the bars, it's not just WandaVision. There are other really great Marvel Studios Disney Plus series that I think Secret Invasion can take its place alongside or even slightly above, depending on how things shake out with the finale, but we won't know until we see it. So that is it for this episode of MCU Fan Show. Thank you so much for continuing to follow along Secret Invasion with us. Make sure you check out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts by searching for the MCU Fan Show channel or Fan Show Plus where you can hear our conversation about the latest trailer for the Marvels. Make sure you're following along in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, threads, and Twitter. Don't forget to leave that Apple Podcast review if you haven't already. If you have, thank you so much. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me at uh, on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Also, please go over to the Comic Binge YouTube channel and subscribe to that. Lots of fun stuff. We've got a great uh, Legion of Superheroes uh episode this week where uh i don't know if you knew about this but uh the famous or infamous depending on who you talk to jim shooter uh comic book uh issues that he wrote when he was 14 years old are going to be reviewed and that is going to be a quite an episode that's all i gotta say but that is 100 the truth uh jim shooter wrote and pl- i'm not sure even how far he wrote i from what i'm told that he actually did write these comics as at a four, at 14 years old but sold them to julia schwartz at dc comics so yeah that's gonna be analyzed talked about on tuesday lots of fun to go check that out and yeah i'll see you around and you can follow me on twitter instagram and threads at mr sean gerber so for paul i'm sean thanks for listening we'll see you next time